You know, folks, with the show now being available on TribLive.com and with all my Yinzer friends up there in the Pittsburgh area, you get to start to meet some wonderful individuals in and around the city. And I did just that with Caroline Cease and the folks at Enchanted Destinations. If you're ready to start planning your dream vacation, be sure to check out Carolyn and the folks there at Enchanted Destinations. If you're planning to go to Disney World or Universal Studios, take a cruise or vacation at an all-inclusive resort, go to EnchantedDestinations.net and Carolyn and her folks are going to help you out and plan the perfect getaway. They're great people doing great things and they are a wonderful help for anybody that's looking to book the perfect vacation. And thinking of the perfect golf getaway and buddies trip location, remember our folks over at the Macklemore, which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay. Dine and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to macklemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus black grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Tom has some exciting news about where you can find him this winter and beyond, which we'll get into in a moment. The man has logged more miles in the white beast than even his accountant can believe. As always, be sure to go out to subscribe to his YouTube channel. On there, you'll be able to get over 300 free video lessons. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at Tom Patrick Golf and online at TomPatrick.com. And it's a, always a joy to get to say that he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? <laughs> How are you, Tom? So-so. Uh, So-so, Chrissy. So-so. Uh, well, let me, let me lift your spirits just a little bit because... Okay. This is our 85th show together. But beyond oh that, oh my God. next week, and I know you're not going to be with me next week, next week would have marked the eighth year to the day, November 8th, 2015, that you would have first joined the show. So happy anniversary, TP. Well, thank you, pal. It's, it's, uh, 
it's been a everyone has been a pleasure being with you and uh and it's not just tom's feeling but it's everybody you guys you guys touch on this show um so many of the teachers that i know that that you have come to know and players we both know uh all feel exactly the same about christmas carol so it's uh it's our pleasure to be with you each and every time well i appreciate that very much um we got a lot to really get into tonight. The majority of it is very, very happy news, but uh, sad news to get kicked off with. I know uh, we just learned that Bobby Knight passed away, and I know he was somebody that was special to you. Yeah, Coach Knight was uh, became a friend um, and kind of a mentor advisor on the coaching side and somebody that um, was awful good to me with sharing information and sharing technique and I've never thrown any chairs on his on his behalf, but um, all kidding aside, he was he was special to me, and um, I think a very misunderstood character because I saw the other side of him. I saw the compassionate, giving, caring side. I saw the guy that had a graduation rate of right around ninety eight percent. I saw a guy that, um, you know, when Landon Turner had his accident, did some special things to make sure he was set up for the rest of his life. Uh, and things that he would never talk about or never go public with. Um, there's a very different side to a very complex person, but uh, he was a hell of a coach and a hell of a human being behind the scenes, and um, he'll he'll be missed. Indeed. All right, so Tom, last time you teased all of us about some exciting news about where we're going to be able to find you going forward. So tell us, which club hit the instructor lottery? Well, it's funny, Chris. We, we were one day short of being able to announce it on the last show, but uh, the club that I'm going to talk about tonight uh, asked me to keep it quiet. Well, they announced the membership, which they did right after our last show. Uh, I was approached uh, kind of very, very suddenly uh, by one of the really great clubs in the Naples area, Twin Eagles, and they've asked me to come, they asked me to become their director of player development, which is a fancy way of saying their director of instruction. Um, 36 fold complex, an incredible, maybe, I think possibly, and I, I don't think I say this lately, maybe the best practice facility in South Florida, East or West Coast. Um, huge double ended range, great target system, great short game area, um, three beautiful putting practice, putting greens, great conditions. They just finished a $28 million renovation for the clubhouse. Um, just, just a beautiful spot. And, um, and uh, I'm blessed to have been asked. It was kind of a uh, a real humble experience. I, I, it's a place I've been kind of looking for to land at uh, since I came to Florida 20 plus years ago. Uh, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the membership at Crown Colony for two great years there. Um, wonderful membership there. And uh, I appreciate what they did for me. But this place is literally two miles from my home. And uh, I'm so excited to uh, to be there. And they've agreed to allow me to teach non-members um, so people can still come and get to me. There you go. All right. So yeah. now that the, the door is still open for us to come see you, tell everybody well, how they can do it. Well, no, no, wait a second. No, people will come see me. You've been asked to come see me on multiple occasions. <laughs> I and, have? And I don't remember will, that. Yeah, of course you don't. You won't get off your ass because, I mean, it will take an effort if you had to do that. So, you know, <laughs> that's, you know. Uh, capital Thanks for LA putting that out there. Capital L A Z Y. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, they yes, can. Everybody they, knows. They can still find me the same way as Chris. I mean, the, the website is you know just tompatry.com, and uh, they can certainly email me at tpatry at mindspring.com. All my contact information is on the website. 
so they can still get to me that way, and uh, I can handle you know, arranging for them to have a spot in the batting order. So tell them where Twin Eagles is exactly. Twin Eagles is in North Naples, off of Immokalee Road. And Chris, it's really cool because it uh, it's a corridor of Immokalee Road that's so far east now that um, <laughs> it backs up to another 36-hole facility called Benita Bay East. And the two facilities right there combined alone are probably close to I don't know. They got to be close to three thousand acres. So the wildlife is. We went out and played the other day. Uh, one of my guys was in town. We played in the afternoon, and in just just for example, in, in we had a two o'clock tea time, and we we counted over a hundred deer. Oh my! And a hundred turkeys, um, Florida panther, uh, bobcats. Uh, obviously, twin eagles is called twin eagles for a reason. The bird life is incredible. You know, we have our friend the Florida alligator. We have wild boar. Uh, it's like Jurassic Park out there. So, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know what a what an animal fan I am. So I'm I'm in heaven. I, I drove out to the teaching building the other morning to open up, and there were literally I think about seven or eight deer at the door waiting for me in the morning. So wow, uh, I'm in heaven. It's a it's a really cool place. Really cool place. All right. So switching gears <coughs> a little bit, you are running the white beast into the ground. Talk about all the other places you've been since we last met you. Yeah, well, we, we had an interesting week, Denise and I. Uh, we, we lost our dog, Salty Dog, this past week. So he's he's up there with Coach Knight right now and they're trying to figure out how to, how to work the full court press. So that was a, a real setback for us and kind of a sad day. So um, Denise is down at Key West on some business. So I drove down to Key West after work the other day and spent the evening with her trying to pick up her spirits and then got up in the morning and drove from Key West to Miami, Florida because I was asked by Jimmy McLean to presented his annual teaching summit, um, which was a real honor. Uh, being asked by Jimmy, uh, not many people get asked. And uh, I was I was really honored, truthfully honored and humbled to be asked and was in the room with kind of a who's who of young guys. Um, it was really fun. So I made a, a couple hour presentation there, um, came home that night, taught yesterday at Twin Eagles, got back in the beast this morning and drove to Lakeland, Florida to do a full day um, kind of a wedge school for the uh, Florida Southern College uh, men's golf team, which is where I played, um, and then just drove back this afternoon to get home in time to be on next on the tee with Chris Mascaro tonight, and then back to Twin, then back to Twin Eagles tomorrow. So uh, other than that, I, other than that, I've had nothing to do this week at all. I've just been, <laughs> they're kind of, sitting, kind of sitting around. So let's take that last part. You went back to Florida Southern and the Lone Palm Golf Club. What was it like for you to be back on campus? You know, you know, Chris. It's it's interesting you say that because I did a I did an Instagram live today, and, and of course you didn't watch that because you don't really keep up with me at all. So, uh, but yeah, so I had no idea to ask this question. The Instagram <laughs> the Instagram live was uh, I got there about uh, on purpose about an hour early before I was going to meet the team and meet Coach Coach White, and um, I try to go up there and work with the team once a year, and I go back for the the golf team fundraiser, which happens to be next week. As a matter of fact, so I got to go back up again, but. Um, you know, Lone Palm and Florida Southern um, basically changed my life. Um, I transferred in there as a junior as an okay college player, and I think I left there as a pretty good college player. Um, the place meant the world to me. Uh, spent time there with a lot of good players. Um, Buddy Alexander, who uh, was living there, who, was a, who went on to be the Gator golf coach for 20-plus years and is a Hall of Famer, uh, produced Camilo Vajegas and Billy Horschel and Brian Gay and a host of other guys. Um, Andy Bean was on property at the time at the height of his career in 80 and 81. Um, 
aside from a really solid college golf team, and so many guys, because of Buddy, because of Andy, came through there to play and practice. And I spent time with most of those people that were different tour players at the time. So the education, the two-year education was a compressed two years that, that just exposed me to so many good players and technique and, and an understanding of how to play the game at a higher level um, and, and really didn't know it then it was going to lead to a teaching career that uh, that experience certainly embellished and helped. Um, I get back on that property each year, you know, like I said, once or twice a year and, and all those kind of memories rush back in. Um, it, it's a place that's very special to me. So it was fun being up there today. I want to stay there for a minute and dip back into your college career. Because in 1980, you and your squad at Florida Southern finished second in the national championship. You finished individually second. You guys finished second behind Columbus State. You guys come back the very next year. The team wins the national championship by 36 strokes over Texas State. You win the individual national championship by four strokes. And talk about how the second place finish in 80 did that fuel both you and the rest of the team to come back even stronger and go on to win the national championship? There, there was a little controversy in that in that junior season when we finished second and I finished second. Um, uh, I, it was funny. Individually, I had led for the first, second, and third round, Chris, and, and I got on the 15th tee of the last round in bad weather conditions on a very hard golf course. And I was even through 15, through 14, and back then you know coach couldn't really do a lot but he could communicate with you on a tee box and he said to me on uh 15 tee do you want to know how you stand and i said yeah sure and i I, was, I felt like i was playing very solid for a very hard day and it started out with a couple of shot lead and he said you're too behind and i said i'm too behind how can i be too behind he goes well paul perini from troy state shot 65 the last round he's sitting in the clubhouse and i was like okay <laughs> so that kind of changed that kind of changed your attitude so i parred 15 16 was a par five uh, with an island green, which I had decided in practice rounds that unless I had a very, very uh, friendly number that I was going to lay up each day and hit, a, and hit a wedge shot, my third shot. But I did have a go mark in the fairway, and I, uh, I hit a really good drive on 16 and got past my go mark. I said, well, i got to make something happen. So I went for it, knocked on the green, two-putted, made birdie. I was one back. Uh, 17 was a par three coming back the other way, also an island green, as it turns out. And I hit it to a foot and made wow. 30 there. So now I'm even. And 18 was a really tough par four. They kind of dog leg left, but we're 30, uh, which then was a long par four. It's not a long par four anymore. Uh, and I, I hit a really good drive that took a kind of a funny bounce, kicked right, but I thought I was fine. I get up to the ball and it had just trickled into the right rough. And there was a tree limb overhanging that was kind of blocking a direct route. And I couldn't. I didn't have a great line. I couldn't get a line on it. So I hit a little cut shot up right in front of the green. I pitched up to about five feet. And it's hard to describe this on a podcast, but, but I told you I hit a five-footer straight up the hill that a third of the ball was over the cup, fringe of the cup, and it didn't drop. Yeah. Yeah, and I, can, I could see that. I mean, I tell the story today, and I can still see it. It's not, a, it's not something I like to revisit a lot, to tell you the truth. Um, and in the third round, there was a rain delay. And they, the um, tournament committee decided it was going to be a minimum of a two-hour rain delay because it was really pouring. And the golf course was in the water. And Coach took three players and went to a Burger King about two miles down the road. And almost, almost after you left, not quite after you left, but just after you left, um, I stayed. And another player on my team stayed. And they go, we're going we're gonna to resume play in 30 minutes. 
I said, no, no, you, you just told us two hours and coach left the campus. We're going to resume the tournament. Anyway, it turns out that he came back and they had just started play and the guys rushed to their holes and the tournament committee penalized each guy two shots. Oh. Yeah, and so it's a kind of an untold story. And we lost that national championship by three shots. Wow. And in my opinion, the guys on the committee that year um, who, who shall go unnamed weren't really big fans of my golf coach. They weren't very friendly. And I, I think they put the screws to him with what they basically did. Um, so we had a lot of motivation, if you want to ask, the next year. No um, kidding. In, in my case, you wonder if you're ever going to get a chance to be in that position again. Um, and I, obviously I was again, and I was able to pull it out. The funny thing about the way we won that golf, and you looked up, you said we won by 36 shots. I thought we had won by 33. But anyway, either way, after the first round, we were nine shots behind. So wow. if, if, if your numbers are right at 36, that means we made up 45 shots in three rounds. So I would call that being pretty motivated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were pretty pissed off. Actually, I, I won. And then my teammates finished third, fifth, seventh, and 11th, I think, in the tournament. So nobody finished out of the top 12 individually. That's strong. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. And we, um, we, we made it a point to make sure those people in that committee from the year before, you know, we, we thanked them so much for their support. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> yeah, we did, actually. That 81 yeah. National Championship, I believe, Tom, was held just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. It was. And you were, and you were paired. With Rocco Media, right? Who at the time was playing for California University, who had later transferred to Florida Southern. No, I, is that I'm right? Sorry, slight correction. I wasn't paired with him, but some, and I don't remember. Rocco tells me this story, and I don't remember this at all. Rocco said that during one of the rounds, I was in a morning wave and he was in an afternoon wave, or vice versa. And he came out and watched me play a couple of holes. And I don't know why he watched me. But he actually wrote this in his book, too. It's in one of the, the books he wrote about the uh, situation of Troy Pike the Tiger. In one of the chapters, he talks about the reason he transferred to Florida Southern was the way we played as a team and the way I played as an individual. And it's in, it's in the book. And I, 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 I don't remember that. And then he made a visit to Florida Southern to transfer. You know, when he made a school visit. And, and he claims that I showed him around campus. And I don't remember that either. I really don't. Um, <laughs> but he writes this in the book that it was the influence of watching me play and watching the team play at, at uh, outside of Hartford, and then the, and then the trip down to Florida Southern, his recruiting trip, that uh, that I was the reason he transferred in there. Um, so if that's true, great. Uh, I'm happy to do it, but um, I don't remember it that way. And we're still good friends today, and he swears that that's what happened. So okay, I, I believe you, Rock. Whatever you say. <laughs> You you mentioned Andy Bean a moment ago, and we recently lost him. He lived in Lakeland, Florida, played his college golf, as you mentioned, at the University of Florida. You guys played a lot of golf together. Talk about who Andy Bean was. So Andy Bean in 1980 and 81, when I was in Lakeland, Florida, Southern was at the peak of his career. I mean, he was a, a top 10 player in the world. Um, he was a, a big, imposing figure. Uh, a big aggressive guy hit it a mile back in those days for, for that time, that time in the golf history game. And also in town at the same time was buddy Alexander, who went on to become the coach at Florida because he was playing and trying to, trying to qualify for the tour, a uh, former Walker cup player and, and later become a U.S. amateur champion. So Andy, I, and, and buddy and a fellow named Tom Gleaton who 
played at Florida Southern, who graduated before me, who had won the first individual national championship at Florida Southern, went on to get his tour card. We all played a lot of golf together. Uh, Andy and Buddy are two of the most competitive human beings on the face of the planet. If you knew either one of them, Buddy is now retired from the U.S. of Florida as the assistant golf coach now in retirement at Auburn. Um, and actually, I spoke to him on the phone coming back from Florida Southern today. Um, but playing with those guys that were older than me and, and you know, tour quality players was invaluable. And Andy was the kind of guy that didn't, not, not that any of us did, but didn't like to lose and made it very well known that he didn't like to lose and, and didn't care if you had $5 in your pocket as a college player and that didn't have a, you know, a pot to piss in. Or you, you know, had a million dollars in your pocket. If you had a match and you lost, you were paying. Um, and I like that. I mean, you know, as, as many times as he beat my brains in, um, I, I enjoyed every second of it. And he was also, on the other side of his personality, happy to help you and give you advice. And if you hit the wrong shot at the wrong time, explained why it was the wrong shot and what you should try to do to play the shot differently. Um, and coming from a world-class player like that, you know, it, you, couldn't put a, you couldn't put a price tag on it. Um, I liked him a lot. He, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He was a very aggressive dude um, and a very imposing figure. But uh, it, it, what a great experience it was for me as a, as a 21-year-old to be around guys like that every day. Tom, you've worked with a lot of junior golfers who have dreams of playing college golf like that. And for kids who are in the process of being recruited, what's some advice that you'd give to them and or their parents about things that they should be aware of during that recruiting process? Well, let's, let's do the negatives first. Um, I've seen too many college coaches make promises they can't keep. So um, in a lot of cases, understand that some coaches speak with forked tongue. You know? So um, be careful with that. Um, the second thing that they're doing now, a lot of these kids, is they're paying for these recruiting services that are going to put them online. And a lot of these recruiting services are really overpriced and underdelivered. Um, I don't think you need that. I, I think you, if you have a resume and you're and you had some, you made made some good, you have some good accomplishments. You put those accomplishments on paper, and you know, do a video of your of your golf swing and write a nice cover letter. That makes you not sound like a complete idiot and then send it and follow up with a phone call or, or a school visit. You can get it done without spending a lot of money on that recruiting process. Now, some of these are really good services, but there's a million of them. And how do you know which one to choose? Um, and I think that, you know, when I talk to my own kids, you know, everybody has a dream of playing on the PGA Tour. And the truth of the matter, Chris, as you and I both know, is that the percentage of guys are going to go to college and are very all good players. They're going to play, you know, play D one, D two golf, and they're really good players. You know, the percentage of those guys that are going to play in tour is so small, and the odds are so much against you. Um, I always tell guys, make sure you have a plan B. You know, I know your plan A is to play the tour. Make sure you have a really good plan B, whether it's graduate school or a career in mind, or you're working towards something. And when when I sit down with my kids and their parents. My priorities are, are listed very carefully to them in this order. Go get a great education at a great school. Go somewhere where you're going to socially fit in and be comfortable. And number three, you know, find a place where you can play golf and be competitive. And they go, no, I want to put golf as number one. I said, no, no, golf's not number one. Golf's number three. 
Your education is first. Do you socially fit in? Okay, is it someplace you're going to be comfortable? And number three, you know, is, is it a good golf program for you? And do you fit into that program? I think that these kids have their priorities. And, I, and often the parents have their priorities upside down and backwards. I want to make sure that you leave there in four years with a degree. And it's, and it's a degree that means something. You know, it's not basket weaving. It's, you know, it's not, you know, you know pie in the sky. It's, it's something that you can use in your life to be successful with. Um, and you've accomplished something. Um, you and I both know how how hard and how cruel the, ro- the world the real world is, and how how cruel corporate America is. Um, and so many of these kids have a plan A that doesn't come true, and then plan B has zero preparation that went into it, and then all of a sudden they're lost. And uh, I don't let that happen to my kids at all, ever. What about if a coach comes to visit? the kid and uh, their parents and has, a, you know, comes to, comes to the front door, rings the doorbell, you know, they, they were expecting the visit now wants to sit down and have a chatter. There's some things that the parents and the kids need to be aware of, like say this, but don't say that. Well, I, I think that, I think that, you know, first of all, it's not like basketball or football. They don't come to the house. Now they're seeing kids at AJJ events or FJ, FJT events, or, you know, we'll, you know, a local term or state championship, that's where they see them. And they make an arrangement to sit down, have lunch or dinner at an event like that. So I think that, you know, I, it's funny, Chris, you say this, because I, I, again, on the way back from, from, from Lakeland today, part of Southern, I was making phone calls, I was getting phone calls. And one of the phone calls came from a kid that I'm working with now, who's a, who we can't use his name right now, but he was, he's a nice young player. And he's really starting to blossom. He's kind of a late bloomer. But he's done some really good things in the last uh, 90 days, say. Really kind of turned the corner suddenly and really shooting some good scores. Actually played an event a week ago and shot 66. I mean, the kid can play, um, but he's a late bloomer. He's really on very few radar screens. And he really wants to play college golf. Um, and he did one of his first college visits today. And he did it to a place that he could definitely play at. Um, I mean, he would definitely start there, in my opinion, as a freshman. It's an okay school, but it's his first visit. So he calls me on the way back, and we're actually both driving on I-75 at the time. He's in the car with his parents. He's like, oh, the visit was great, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think I'd really like to go there. I said, dude, it's your first visit, okay? You're going to make six visits, the six schools we pick. It's your first visit. He goes, well, yeah, but I think I think it fit in. I said, it's your first visit. You, you didn't commit to anything, did you? I told you not to. No, I, I didn't. But I think I I said, you know, you're going to take all six visits. And then we're going to sit down and talk about the pluses and minuses of each place and all the promises that were made. And we're going to discuss how many of the promises are real and can really be delivered. And then you're going to make a decision. They get excited. You know, they get excited because somebody pays attention to them and they really want to play somewhere so bad. And I see kids, not my kids, thank goodness, but I see kids jumping the gun sometimes and and making a commitment to go there. And all of a sudden, it's the end of the first semester, and they want to transfer. And, you know, now it's easy to transfer with the portal. It's easy to transfer. But, again, it's like you're starting all over someplace else again. And and if you were a little more patient, we, t- we talked about patience, didn't we, Chris? Indeed, <laughs> we did. And a little more patient. You know, and you put all all the facts on the table at the end of your X number of visits, 
and you sit down with somebody who's been through it about 55,000 times with kids, um, you can make better decisions. I've had 125 kids in my career play college golf. So I've heard all the promises. I've heard all the bullshit and, and I've heard all the truth. And I can kind of see through a lot of these things. And I, and I know a lot of these coaches too. I have relationships with a lot of them. So I say to them, listen, you're not paying me for the service. You're not paying a recruiting service. You're paying somebody who knows these people you're talking to. Let's sit down at the end of six visits or four visits, whatever it is. And, and let's really weigh all the pros and cons and where you'll be happiest and be most successful. All right, Tom, one more before I let you go, and I want to switch gears. Go, man. The last time we talked on the show about the new TGL League that Tiger and Rory are starting in January. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tiger has another joint venture currently with Justin Timberlake, oh, and they've started boy, a new restaurant and sports bar, and they want to open one in the town of St. Andrews. But the residents... Not so excited about that idea. They're saying it's going to be a place for rich American tourists to go, and it's going to strip away the vital part of the town's identity and history. So what do you make of the folks at St. Andrews shooting down Tiger and Justin and their new sports bar idea? You know, Chris, I'd have to support them 100%. You know, I've been to St. Andrews, um, let me think of it, on three different occasions. Um would would you let Tiger and Justin put a sports bar in the Vatican? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, not no. quite, right? No. Uh, you know, would, would you? Would, you know, I mean, I can go down the list of places I wouldn't want to put a sports bar based on history and purity of history. And to me, Saint, the first time I went to St. Andrews, Chris, and I walked on the first day, I started crying. So that's what it meant to me. Um, it's it's as it always has been. It's as it always should be and always will be, hopefully. And listen, I, I have nothing against just Tim Wake or Tiger Woods opening a sports bar, not in St. Andrews. Um, I, I, I think we, we talked about this a little bit off air. I don't think I don't think there's a McDonald's in St. Andrews. You know, I mean, it's it's the little local pub, it's the great B and B, it's the cobblestone streets, it's the graveyard across town in back of the University of St. Andrews where Old Tom and Young Tom and Alan Robinson are buried. Uh, and if you don't know who Alan Robinson, he, he's the first keeper of the green of St. Andrews and who trained Old Tom Morris. That's, that's where we're going back here to history in St. Andrews. So to me, that's hollow ground. That's, you know, as, as a person who is in love with my game, our game, the people's game, um, that's the Vatican. St. Andrews is the Vatican. Um, and it's and, and you know how we both feel about Augusta National. It's not even close. St. Andrews is the Vatican. Augusta is a local rectory. Okay. Um, and, and that's how I compare the two. And do I love do we love Augusta? You and I both love Augusta. And Augusta in American golf may be, you know, a cathedral, but it's not the Vatican. And to have an American sports bar in St. Andrews, no, I'm sorry. I I, I don't see it myself. So thank you. Tom, before I let you go, remind everyone again, how can they follow you on Instagram? How can they find you at Twin Eagles? And how can they get online with you? Well, all, all the regular things, like you said, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. I know, excuse me, no Twitter anymore, pardon me. Uh, Facebook, two pages on Facebook. The website is just tompatry.com and uh, Twin Eagles in North Naples. Um, but 
all my personal contact information is on the website at tompatrick.com and 85 shows, Chris, 85 shows, 85 shows you put up with my nonsense. Uh, What is wrong with me? 85 shows you've listened to my, my, my real nonsense. I mean, nonsense. (laughs) Um, and uh, how many shows have you done overall, Chris? How many done, have you done? Oh, you know? uh, I, I, I really don't know the number right off the top of my head. I think the last time I looked, it was 756. I'm, I'm sure it's north of that now. So 756 times, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Mascaro has come to the air 110% prepared. He's entertained some of the best teachers on the planet, some of the best players on the planet, some of the best industry leaders on the planet. The show has won countless awards all well-deserved, and the guy is simply the best at what he does every single week he's ready to go. And for somebody like me, who's just a knucklehead that teaches backswings, to be able to have a platform to talk about all the nonsense I talk about, and I'm given that platform by Chris Mascaro, I am pretty blessed. Thank you very much. I'm the one who's truly blessed to have someone great like you. No, sir. No, sir. You got it backwards. And you know what, Chris? You're you're outnumbered in that in that thought process, five hundred to one by every single guest that comes on your show, many of whom I know really well, and we all feel the same way. Well, that means a great deal to me, TP. Thank you for that, my friend. Um, have tell a great Perch, night. We'll catch up Perch, in a couple of weeks. And Tom Perch is, yeah. Tell Perch I said hi. I will absolutely do that. I'm sure he's listening right now. Okay, so, bud. Take care, TP. We'll catch up again in a couple of weeks. Bye, pal. You're the best. Ha. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. That is a great Tom Patry. He's the best, by the way, and just a wonderful human being and and one of the top coaches in the history of this game. Be sure to go out there on TomPatry.com. Check him out there. Follow him on Instagram. Go get those free lessons on his YouTube channel. They just don't come better than, than that guy. One other thing about Tom and I, we've been working with a company called Kickpoint, and they have done some magical things with our logos and create some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Okay, like you heard a moment ago, coming up next is going to be PGA Tour legend Tom Pertzer. Before I get to Tom... I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. 
And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arco's and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arco's Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Now back and next on the tee with me is PGA Tour legend Tom Pertzer. I'm so blessed to say that Tom has become a wonderful friend over the last few years. It's always so much fun when he's a part of the show. Let me remind you a little bit about his background. Played his college golf at Arizona State from 1970 to 73. He won the Arizona Collegiate Tournament twice in 1971 and 73. He won the Southwest Open in 1972. In 1973, he won the Broadmoor Men's Invitational and was named a second-team All-American. In 1989, he was inducted into the Sun Devil Hall of Fame. He turned pro in 1973, got his first win on the PGA Tour at the 1977 Glen Campbell Los Angeles Open, and he did so by one stroke over Lanny Watkins. Over the course of his playing career, Tom won five times on the PGA Tour, four more times on the Champions Tour. One of the many great things about his PGA Tour wins is they came over the course of three different decades. He won tournaments in 1977, 84, 88, and 1991. In all, he won 15 professional events. And as most of you know, Tom has always been known for having one of the sweetest swings in tour history. And I couldn't be more delighted that I get to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing good, as far as I know. <laughs> I, Before- I got it. I- I do I do have to echo exactly what Tom said when he finished up. You're the best. Well, I appreciate you saying that very much. It means a great deal to me. Tom, before we get into all the golf stuff, I know you're out there in Arizona. You're an Arizona guy. Your Diamondbacks are down three games to one in the World Series. Can they pull it off? Well, um, that remains to be seen, but I think they can. I think they'll win today, and then we'll see what happens the next two games. They've um, it, you know, for, for where they started the year, I mean, they had a good good beginning of the year, then they kind of plateaued off a little bit. But for them to be in the World Series is huge. I think Tony's done a, a great job uh, managing this year. And um, I, I just hope they, I hope they win today, and then we'll see what happens. Tom, I want to go back to the last point I made in your intro about you winning tournaments in three different decades. One of the marks of greatness is longevity, and you certainly had that, winning over nearly a 15-year span. What do you attribute that to? Was it your sweet swing? What was it? Well, I think that's a big part of it, yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I didn't really, I, w- I was healthy until 1992, um, but 
before that, I was healthy. I never, I really never had a, a, a health issue or a, you know, bad back or anything. But um, so I think that was part of it. And I think part of that being healthy and not having issues with my back is that I, that I had a swing that was, um, it, it wasn't taxed. It didn't tax my body. Um, I know I, I see some swings and, um, you know, where they have people, guys have had bad backs and wrists and issues like that. And I think that's partly attributed to their swings. Um, and so in, to answer your question, I think that was a big part of it. Um, you know, that my swing was, um, was, you know, was pretty good. Um, and, and it didn't put a, put a tax on my, on my body, so to speak. Um, but, you know, I, and, you know, the times I won were the times that I, I putted halfway decent. So that, that was kind of, that kind of helped. Um, but, you know, I, I had a lot of opportunities and, you know, only one in five times, my percentages wasn't that good. <laughs> one of the wins I didn't mention in your intro was at the Japan versus USA golf matches in 1979. And you won that event by 10 strokes over Bill Rogers. So many great legends in our game won that event. Players like Isao Aoki, Tom Watson, Jerry Pate, Bobby Clampett, Curtis Strange, just to name a few. What do you recall about going over there and winning that event? Well, that was the first time that, you know, I'd really ever gotten outside of college. Um, but being on tour, that was the first time I ever played kind of as a team. And so I was, you know, when, you, when you're playing with a team and, and that, uh, you know, representing the country and stuff, you wanted to play. I wanted to play good for, for my guys on my team. Um, that was huge to me that I could, um, you know, play as good as I did. Um, but it was huge to me. It gave me a good mental boost, um, to know that cause you know, I think part of the, part of my reason that I didn't win more times than I did was I didn't really kind of, this doesn't sound right, but I, I didn't really believe in myself. You know, this was kind of before, uh, before sports psychologists and stuff. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure mentally that I w should have been there, that I should have, uh, I didn't, you know, I just didn't think that I was as good a player as um, a lot of guys. So I think that kind of hurt, but, you know, going over there and playing with those, you know, on that team and there are a bunch of good players uh, on both sides of that team. So that kind of gave me a little confidence. Um, so the, yeah, that, it it was it was just fun and it, you know it was on a good golf course and and being in a foreign country uh, made it a, a little extra special. Um, the other day I tweeted out that it was the anniversary of Arnold Palmer's last appearance in the Sahara Invitational in 1973. He finished tied for 20th and earned the hefty sum of thirteen hundred and thirty eight dollars and eighty six cents, and people couldn't believe how little he got paid. And when I look at that you and you won the Glen Campbell Open in 77. The winning paycheck was $40,000, and guys are getting that now for finishing in 40th place. Guys who <laughs> win are getting $1.5 on a low end. Did you yeah. think you were rich in 77 when they handed you a $40,000 check? 
Well, you, you know, compared to what Arnold and those guys were playing for, yeah. I mean, we we felt like we were making a, a ton. I remember when Jimmy Colbert started his tournament in Las Vegas, and he goes, guys, we're going to play for a million dollars. And I mean, no, nobody could believe it. Uh, but yeah, the, the scary thing is, um, like, I, I don't know what, 82, I think I finished. I don't know, third or fourth in the British Open, and I and I won eleven thousand um, dollars. So, you know, and that that barely covered your expenses um, for the for the week. So, yeah, t- things have changed. Um, I'm happy for the guys. You know, the guys that are playing now. It's it's great to see how much they're they're making these days. The Players Championship wasn't always played at the Stadium Course at TPC Sawgrass. It was played on different courses until they settled there in 82. But was Pete Dye's design, particularly the Island Green on 17, was that a new idea at the time? Or had you guys played courses with Island Greens before that? No, that's the that's really the only Island Green that I know uh, of playing uh, in profession, you know, professional tournaments for me anyway. Uh, I don't I'm not sure that I remember another for sure it was the first one. Um, and I don't know that I've played too many of them since. I know a lot of courses have kind of tried to copy, but I don't know that we've played very many of those on tour. But uh, yeah, the tournament players, that that's always been a great, we played, I think it's Sawgrass Country Club. And I'm, I'm the weather that we had when we played there, I think the golf course was harder than TPC. Because um, <laughs> there were some, there were some brutal holes uh, on that, on that on that golf course but yeah pete pete did a masterful job you know um it was so hard that he he i think he had to come back in and redo most of the greens uh because they were so severe and around the greens i don't i don't necessarily mean so much the greens but around the greens the the bunkers the you know the sand uh, uh, grass bunkers and all that stuff they were they were brutal i think that's that's why Dave Pell's kind of invented the 60, you know, 60 degree wedge, 63 degree wedge, whatever. But yeah, it was so, it was so difficult when you missed a green there, you were, you were busy. <laughs> Do you remember going around that course the first time and coming up to the 17th tee and seeing that Island green? Oh yeah. 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 And I never had a problem with it until I hit one in the water. <laughs> and, and that was about, I I didn't I don't think I hit one in the water for I don't know eight ten years and then all of wow. a sudden all of a sudden you hit one in the water and then you every time you got up there you go you know whoa wait okay let's see um, let me let me just get it right in the middle of the screen um, but it, it it's a it's a daunting task to uh, I mean you could throw it on the green really and um, you know it's just it's just the the you know it comes the next to last hole in your round most of the time and uh it's it's just a it's a great little finishing hole i mean it's you, you wouldn't think that it it would pucker you up but boy it sure does you frequently played well in jack's tournament at the memorial and arnold palmer's tournament there at bay hill several top 10s top 25s in both of those events was there an extra push to play well in those tournaments for you because it was in front of Jack and Arnold? Absolutely. Uh, Byron Nelson, same thing. You know, when I, I think Memorial was probably my, you know, I, I loved Colonial. Um, 
I got to sit with Ben Hogan one night um, at the at the champions dinner, uh, which was really cool. But anytime you play with or anytime you're in those those guys' presence, you know, Arnold, uh, it was a I remember the first time I walked into the clubhouse at Bay Hill and I had my hat still on and I walk in and the first guy I see was Arnold. And he 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 fingered me over, you know, he said, Come here, son. And he goes, we don't wear hats in our in the in the clubhouse, and that was the last time that I ever did that. But I mean, <laughs> you know, you just stuff like that. It just, you know, I I grew up, you know, at you know at dusk every day, uh, trying to beat one of those guys in in a putt off uh, on the 18th hole at some tournament, and and then to you know all of a sudden you're playing at, at their event. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was special. Uh, I think Memorial probably was my favorite. Um, and and I think it was basically because of Jack. You mentioned sitting with Ben Hogan at the Champions Dinner. What was that like? You know, he was, I, I, I only, I only met him, I don't know, four or five times. He couldn't have been a nicer human being. Uh, very, you know, proper. Um, just, you know, you, he was a consummate golf professional for, in my, my view. Um, you know, he talked to me and he, you know, he, he said some really nice things, uh, about my swing and, and all that stuff. And, um, you know, coming, having somebody, having that said to you from somebody like a Ben Hogan is it's awe. I was just in awe. And, um, like I said, it couldn't have been nicer. Um, and, you know, that was, I'll never forget that. That's one of those things that, you know, the, the, you know, we, there's a lot of cool things that happen to us on tour and that sticks out in my mind as one of the, one of the premier, uh, events of, of tour just being able to, you know, sit next to him and talk to him and listen to him really. Um, Tiger and Rory are about to start up a new venture called the TGL league, which is essentially team video simulation golf it's supposed to be televised starting in january is that something you've got any interest in checking out uh, i think I'd, I'd like to watch it yeah um anything tiger does i think and you know all those guys that are in part of that um part of that process i like i like all the young guys um on tour um they're they all seem like they're really really good guys and uh, I think they have a respect for the game. Um, and I, I, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know much about it. So uh, I'm, I don't know whether I'm the right guy to ask. But, you know, it's one of those deals where I'm going to I'll watch it and, and, and just kind of check it out and see. You know, I think, you know, anything that those guys do, I think they're going to, you know, put their best foot forward. So um, it'll, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Tom, one of the things that Tom Patry and I discussed a couple of weeks ago is how much fun it would be to watch today's players, speaking of the guys out there now, play in a tournament using the old persimmon woods, blade irons, and balata golf balls. I'd love to see how they'd perform using the equipment that you guys played with. What do you think about that idea? <laughs> I'm not sure they'd like that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, and all these guys are so good that I don't, they, they wouldn't have a, they wouldn't have an issue uh, switching back and forth 
uh, to that. But I think that would be a wonderful idea. I think it it caused a lot of uh, interest, and it would be really fun to watch. You know, it, all of a sudden, you got to hit it in the middle of those club faces all the time, um, and it, it, I think it would be interesting. I, I know, you know, guys would, you know, the best guys would still be the best guys. Um, um, but I think it would be a great idea if somebody could come up with, you know, with a tournament like that. Um, I'm not sure how many guys you would get to be interested in playing in it. But, um, yeah, I think it, I think it'd be a great idea. I, I think it would show, um, I think it would have these these young fellows would have an appreciation of what uh, what Jack and Arnold and Ben Hogan and Sam Snead and and Byron Nelson what those guys played with and you know just to see the difference. Speaking of the difference, one of the things that Tom and I both shook our heads about if you go back and you look at the old four woods and the five woods and you put a golf ball down. I mean, the size of the head of a four wood or a five wood was barely bigger than the golf ball. It's it, sometimes I look back at that stuff and think, how in the world did we ever hit the golf ball with one of no. those woods? Chris, no, I mean, you put it, I, I've taken out my old Tony Penna driver. I still have it. And I put, I put it behind, you know, I put it behind the golf ball and it looks like the head of my Tony Penna driver is smaller than the golf ball. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, I know it's an optical thing, but it's, it's incredible. The stuff that we played with, uh, you know, and, and it, it put such a premium on hitting at the middle of the club face. Um, you know, if you hit it, if you hit it toe side or heel side, it, it really cost you, you know, distance and, and accuracy, but it's it's scary when you put a uh, you know like a like you said a four wood or three wood four wood five wood behind the ball looks like the ball definitely is bigger than the head. Tom, one more before I let you go, and you're a great teacher of the game now. Um, it's about to get pretty darn cold in the states outside of Arizona, Florida, and Southern California. Do you have a tip for us? How do we make sure that our swings don't get completely rusty over the course of the winter? You know, I think the thing that I see in you know, in especially when you get older and and when you're when you're not able to, you know, to play or practice, I think you've got to stretch. I think you've got to keep going, keep your body moving, um, you know, do some calisthenics, some exercises, yoga, um, just anything that you can keep your body moving. I think what happens is, you know, you get stuck uh, not doing much because of the weather and all of a sudden you know, that turn, the turn to me is the key to a a good golf swing. If if you don't get behind the ball, if you don't get turned behind the ball, uh, on your backswing, you're swimming upstream. Um, it's just so important, you know, and I noticed that especially the older I'm getting, the harder it is to make a turn going back and it's huge. So, you know, I think, you know, just if you can, you know, if, if you're able to just hit golf balls into a net or any, anything just to keep moving um, and, you know, to make sure that you're able to, you know, turn your body away from the ball uh, so that you can make that forward swing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, if you can, and you can, and I, I don't, I, I think I can't emphasize enough to do some mental, uh, you know, a lot of times you can, 
you can mentally, you know, make swings and get feels and stuff like that. So it's just, it, there's a lot of stuff you can do. Um, but for me, uh, it's basically keep your body moving, uh, make sure that you can stretch and get, because the turn is, I think, the key to, the, to a golf swing. Um, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing now and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Well, I'm on Facebook. It, that's pretty easy. Um, and um, I'm just starting. I'm still doing some teaching, but I, I just got my real estate license. So I'm going to I'm trying to get into that market a little bit and uh, sell some houses here in the beautiful city of Scottsdale, Arizona. Very nice. Tom, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You talk about someone saying nice, nice things and just being in awe of them. Well, you've, uh, you've said an awful lot of nice things about me, and, I, and I'm just in awe that Tom Pertzer knows my name, let alone to say nice things. So it means a great deal to me, as do you. Uh, so thank you so much for being here and all you've meant to me in the show over the years. Oh, Chris, it's, it's my pleasure, and I can't thank you enough for having me on. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, like I said, like Tom said, um, nobody knows this job better than you. You you do your homework and it shows. And like Tom said, all the all of the professionals, all the all the people that you have on here feel the same way. Well, I appreciate that again so very much. Tom, take care, my friend. The best of luck to you and to your Diamondback. I hope we get the privilege of doing this again soon. Okay, thanks, Chris. See you, Tom. Bye-bye. That is the great Tom Pertzer, folks. I am always in awe when I know Tom Pertzer is about to be a guest on the show. A great player like Tom was. Now, let's take a step back. Tom is an outstanding person. That's number one. And I think that came through through the course of the conversation and the many times he has been a part of the show. He was a great player, but he's a 10 times better person than he was a player. And like, like I say, you don't win 15 professional events and do it over the course of three decades without being a great player. So I can't thank Tom enough. He means a great deal to me on a personal level. Like I say, he's been a wonderful guest, and now he's an even better friend. So I look forward to the next time we have the privilege of having him back as a guest on the show, and I hope that time is very, very soon. Coming up next is going to be the head golf professional at the Pittsburgh Field Club and another wonderful friend of the show, Chris Sheehan. Before I get to Chris, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NXTONTEE20, so next on T20, to save 20% at checkout. So go to 2under.com. That's a number 2UNDR.com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. 
Visit Skoni.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's Skoni.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right, now back and making his seventh appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is Chris Sheehan. Let me uh, give you some background on Chris. He is from Warwick, Rhode Island. He attended Trinity College over in Hartford, Connecticut, where he was the captain of the baseball and hockey teams. He was an all-region and all-American nominee in both sports. In golf, Chris won the 2003 Western New York PGA Section Assistant Professional Championship, and he tied for 38th at the TaylorMade Adidas National Assistant Professional Championship that same year. He spent six seasons working along three of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors, including Bill and Craig Harmon, plus Todd Stones. In 2009, Chris was the PGA South Florida Section's Private Club Merchandiser of the Year. He won the South Florida Section Southwest Chapter PGA Bill Strasbaugh Award in 2015. The following year, he was named the South Florida Section Southwest Chapter PGA Professional of the Year. He has worked at clubs like Oak Hill, Inverness, and Lebanon Country Club, to name just a few. He is now the head golf professional at the Pittsburgh Field Club, and I'm excited I get to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, absolutely, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you again. So, Chris, it's been about a year since I got to have you as part of the show. <laughs> Catch us up. What's been going on with you? Uh, you know, finishing up a tremendous uh, third season at Field Club, and, um, you know, club is, is booming, and, you know, our membership is full, and the events are, are massively participated in and, um, you know, a little bit of a, had a, had a hip replaced in, uh, in March. Oh, no. Oh yeah. 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 I'm getting old. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, uh, got through that and was a little delayed, but, uh, got through that and then, you know, had a little elbow problem in the middle of the season, got through that. And then my mom unfortunately passed in September. So we got through that. So I'm looking forward to a little bit of a winter rest and, uh, no doubt. But uh, yeah, it's just been a tremendous season. Uh, I'm blessed to be uh, the golf professional at, at, at Pittsburgh Field Club. It's, uh, you know, as great as the, as the place is, the, the membership is even greater. And uh, yeah, we, we're going to quiet down. We had our first snowfall this morning. So we'll take a. Is a that weeks. right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll take a few weeks to get the staff recharged and then we'll just start getting ready for next year. All right, so I want to go back in your career because you got your start in the golf industry, as I recall, back in 1997, working at Fisher's Island in New York. Is that right? Yeah, my I, I yeah, my father was a high school a boys parochial uh, principal, and he hired a math teacher who became the general manager at a nine-hole place on Fisher's Island called the Hay Harbor Club, which uh, people around golf say is the closest thing to Bally Bunyan you'll ever see in your life. And, uh, so I worked for Mr. Duggan there and, uh, the pro after the, after the first year, his name was Gene Mulack, uh, who had helped Billy Harmon, uh, during the 96 us amateur, uh, at Newport. Um, he ran an ancillary merchandise store for Billy downtown Newport and Billy said, I'll, I'll pay you back someday. And 
in 97 when I was at Hay Harbor, or 98 maybe when I was at Hay Harbor, Billy came to do a golf school and and uh, I was the guy who picked him up off the boat and I was the fetch boy and the, the guy who set up the school and picked up the balls and took care of the bunkers and took care of the players. And, you know, two days later, he was back in his car onto the boat and he said, hey, you want to come to California? I said, yeah, I'd love to go. So that's how I got uh, got to meet Billy and, and went out west to work for him at Bighorn. And uh, he, he sent me over to work for Craig at Oak Hill in 2001, two and three. And then I ended up at Inverness and um ended up in florida for 15 years had some great success down in florida and uh you know got back up to pittsburgh area not that i'm from here but it was just something that i always thought i would be having worked at oak hill and inverness always wanted to be you know a head golf professional at one of the one of the historic clubs in the northeast and uh and uh, a couple of years later here we are so let's talk about that being there at pittsburgh field club and the amazing history that that club has talk about what you learned about the history of that golf course since you've been there. Well, in a little bit of irony too, your next guest is someone I've become friendly with in the past four months, but, uh, you know, field club is, is in USGA databases, the 10th oldest club in America. Um, and we are approaching our 150th anniversary and the club has, has, uh, has reached, uh, a working arrangement with your next guest, David Moore, as uh, you know, he's the club historian at Oakmont and he's worked hard at Allegheny and he does a lot of history history and he's a history junkie and he's a golf historical uh, junkie. And, and the club has, has uh, an arrangement with him that he's going to help lead us into our 150th, 50th anniversary in wow. 2032. So it's uh, it, it was neat to see David and I were emailing back and forth before, the, before I came on um, that, uh, it's just ironic that that he and I are on the same night because we've gotten to know each other. And, you know, it's when you try and track down history of a club that's 150 years old, it's it's a it's a monumental task. And uh, he certainly seems to be the right guy for the job. And we're excited to have him here and, and working with us and uh, just getting to, to to see how he goes about collecting information and where you find stuff and, uh, you know, auction sites and finding trophies from 1911 and you know, it, it's just something that he's passionate about and he's good at it. And, uh, and, and the club is blessed to have him moving forward. But, uh, yeah, the club, you know, 1882, it was originally the Pittsburgh Cricket Club in 1871. Um, you know, but it, it, in, in 1896, you know, they, they built three holes using French pecans to play golf and, um, expanded to five holes in, in 1897 and nine holes in 1901. And, uh, it's just an amazing place. It's just, uh, it's always been a place that's been about sports and it's always been a place that's been about families. And, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, I get to be the, the new steward for golf here. And it's something that I'm very passionate about learning about the history of the club, embracing what David is, is the, you know, sort of the, you know, the magical ride that David's going to lead us on for the next nine years leading up to the 150th anniversary. And, you know, having a PGA championship in 1937 and the, the Western Open in 1959 with some great champions and some some very, uh, very similar results to those tournaments, uh, sort of last hole failures that ended up uh, with with people on the right side of history. But uh, it, it's there's never a day when you work at the club that you don't see something that that amazes you. You don't find a new historical perspective, obviously having tournaments here and trying to protect the history and traditions of the club and also 
you know, as a golf professional in, in 2023, trying to add a little pep and pizzazz to some of the activities that we do and creating new events and establishing new traditions is something that that me and my team are passionate about. And, uh, you know, we try and balance all that history and all the tradition with doing some modern things. And, and uh, you know, we've had some great success. Our events are really, really well supported. And, you know, the club is just doing fantastic. Alexander Finley is the original designer of PSC. But since the club opened on the current property in 1915, several very famous other designers have been brought in to do modifications like Tillinghast, Donald Ross, Robert Trent Jones, and Trip Davis. Talk about why so many legendary architects have come in and tinkered with the golf course. Yeah, just an amazing lineage of, of folks that have helped this club along. You know, Alex Finley built it in 1914, and, you know, legend has it that uh, that Ross did work in 1915. He changed the first, basically, the holes two, three, four, and 5 right out of the gate. Uh, Tillinghast followed Willie Park Jr., Trent Jones in 52. Arthur Hills was here to make some suggestions in 85. Um, you know, the longtime pro Emil Leffler, who was the pro and superintendent at Oakmont, had his hand in it. But, you know, uh, as many as many golf courses try and stay relevant, there's always an amalgamation of of help. And the, the field club has has uh, has a proven history of people that help it become what it has become. Over one hundred and forty two years. Um, with smart decisions and and calculated decisions with the eyes that they put on the facility and, and how they could make things better. And certainly, you know, anyone can come in and make suggestions, but the club has to have the, the fortitude and, and the leadership to make decisions, to make it better. And, and uh, you know, I'll be honest, it, it's uh, to, to be in this little corner of, of the world, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where you got Fox Chapel across the street, Oakmont's just across the river. They hosted the U.S. Amateur last year with Longview, which is across the river. You got five world-class facilities within probably six square miles of each other. And, and to have these massively historic clubs that have hosted so many great championships um, and survive, have four different memberships survive that all within you know this little tiny circle of Pittsburgh is, is an amazing testament to how golf-rich this city is. Um, and how golf uh, crazy these people are. So uh, certainly a blessing to be part of Field Club. And, um, you know, we've got members, and it's become common a common practice at the club in my three years that you've got members who have been here for three years or five years or 10 years or 20 years that or 50 years that just say that they have never seen the golf course in better shape. You know, I ran into Eric Johnson this morning at the grocery store, and he said, man, I his kid plays on the high school team and he said i have never seen it like that it's just it's an amazing club it's an amazing golf course and and i'm just blessed to be a part of it it's interesting you mentioned eric johnson because he's going to be back on the show with me again next week good he's, uh, yeah he's one of my favorites yeah um talking about the shape of the golf course chris and i watched some videos of the course and the condition of it looks like it could host a big tournament really at a moment's notice. And a lot of the comments that people have written in the sections where the, the course is listed all talk about the great condition it's always in. Talk about maintaining that golf course to such high standards. Yeah, I just, you know, there, there's a, the green superintendent is Justin McKay. He was an assistant for about 10 years, uh, promoted to that position, you know, 
probably four, four and a half years ago, about a year before I got here. And, um, you know, to have that sort of 15 year knowledge of the facility, you know, he knows every nook and cranny. He, he knows, you know, when things change color, he knows when things change moisture. He just has the eye for it. And, you know, the, the, the membership uh, has certainly, you know, having having been to the Greens Committee meetings and the Golf Committee meetings, they they understand that, you know, above all the golf courses, you know, other than the membership, the golf course is, is the primary asset of the club. And if the golf course isn't very good, then, you know, you wouldn't really have a club. So the membership uh, supports that endeavor, uh, both spiritually and financially. And they allow Justin to uh, and his team. And he's got a tremendous uh, group that he that work with him and they allow him to do his work. They listen to him. Um, he's got tremendous intuition with regards to aerification and, and things of that nature. A little bit unlucky this week with aerification during frost, but you know, they're working through it and there's no doubt it's gonna come out better than what it is. And um it's just a, it's just a, a great uh team effort between the membership um and the staff about who they want to be, uh, how how good they want their golf course to be. Uh, they spent some time the last three years making it faster and firmer. It, it certainly paid dividends as far as playability goes for the membership. You know, in the spring and fall, the greens are, are rolling 15, 14. Wow. It gets, yeah, it just gets to a point where it's in such good shape and Mother Nature with the cool nights just takes over and uh, it's just made it great. And it's improved it in the summertime where Typically, it's been a little bit moist. Uh, you know, he's doing multiple aerifications a year, almost six times a year. You know, little aerifications to to get some air underneath it and change out some soil. And it's really paying dividends after three years of, of work. And, you know, all the credit is to Justin and his team and the club and, and the membership for supporting all of his efforts. And uh, it's just been an unbelievably conditioned golf course. You know, and, I, and I'm lucky because I worked at Oak Hill and Inverness and I, I watched, you know, the major at Oak Hill, the PGA at Oak Hill, and the senior open in Inverness. So I know what great championship golf courses look like. Um, and this is no different, if not better. And, uh, you know, we lack the, we lack the, the yardage to host anything uh, major with the with the gentleman. But I, I, I really believe it would be a tremendous venue for a Solheim Cup. Um, it has a, a lot of natural stadium seating. Uh, it has tremendous elevation changes which is unique in this it's unique for us compared to places like fox chapel and oakmont um but it would be a tremendous venue a, a, a beautiful clubhouse um that that would be a tremendous spot for for media for for the ladies um you pair it with you know in the fall with maybe a a, a pirates game or a steelers game and you get you get the ladies on the field and and introduce, you know, Solheim Cup to to different to a different dynamic of spectator. I just think this would be a perfect place for a Solheim Cup. And uh certainly the condition of the golf course could handle it. The ladies would love it. And uh and and, and the club uh it, it just it it you're right, it deserves and it it certainly can hold anything at any point. It's in, it's always in that good of condition. Chris, as I've watched videos of the golf course, it reminds me a little bit of Augusta National in that, like you mentioned, it's got a lot of elevation changes. Doesn't look like you can get into a lot of trouble off the tee. You've got some trees left and right. So it looks to me like Augusta National in that it is a second shot golf course and you better be really good around the greens and on the greens. Is that fair or am I off base on that? I'd certainly agree that that, that most folks that play it 
consider it a second shot golf course and certainly around the greens the greens are relatively small and i've never been to augusta my my only my thing with augusta was i would always go if my brother made it and i'd caddy there and then i would start going but he never made it there so i've never been <laughs> but uh it, it's yeah i mean over the years because of you know maintenance practices and and trying to get the golf course to breathe a little bit and trying to keep the greens healthy it's obviously it obviously was a very uh, tree-rich environment for a long time. So they've, they've, they've done a lot of tree removal over the past 15 years, um, which has really improved the condition of the golf course. Uh, it's really improved the condition of the greens, the green speeds. Uh, but, yeah, elevation changes and uphill and downhill tee shots, uphill and downhill second shots, dog-like tee shots that move left to right and right to left, long par threes, short par threes. It certainly has characteristics of Augusta that I know that I've watched on TV for probably 40 years. Um, I can't really say I've been there, uh, you know, can compare them in person, but if you're using elevation changes in a second shot golf course and the difficulty of the greens, you know, the thing to remember about field club is that, you know, part of the golf course was built, you know, original holes that still exist were built a hundred plus years ago where the greens were running six or seven. We've got those same golf holes with the same greens and the same contours that are now running anywhere from 12 to 15 throughout the year. So we've lost a lot of our hole locations. We're going to modify 10 to be able to, to put some hole locations in the front front left corner because we can really only use the back right third of the green. You know, They made some modifications to, to the fifth hole last year so we could put a pin in the back right third of that green. Um, so it, it's always a delicate balance where you're asking for capital dollars to keep your golf course relative, uh, you know, relatively uh, fair uh, because the conditions have really outpaced the design, which is what a lot of golf courses will go through uh, when the funding is there and when the when the general interest is there to make your golf course as fast and firm and, and as well conditioned as it can be. Uh, sometimes you can do that and outpace the design. So we're going to have to spend the next few years changing some of the greens and, um, you know, probably moving some bunkers. But uh, in general, um, it, it's a tremendous place to play. And it's, uh, you know, everybody says you never get sick of it. It never gets old. You can hit it left and right. You can still get out and get it up to the green. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, holes where you can bump it into the greens. You can run it up to the greens. Um, it's got just a lot of uh, shot variety that that a lot of golf courses, particularly modern golf courses, lack. Um, but this this golf course, which has stood the test of time for you know over a, over a hundred years, really offers a variety of shots that you need to be good at if you really want to score well here. The 18th hole has an interesting story. The original design had it as a 277 yard par four, but severely uphill. So uphill that during the summer, legend has it, that a couple of members died of a heart attack trying to climb it. So now it's a par three with an elevator to take players up to green level. Is that accurate? It, it is. Uh, yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the 18th hole used to be a par four at 275 yards. It probably played closer to 425. Um, but you hit a tee shot up, to, up, up a hill and then you hit a second shot straight up a hill and um, you know, legend has it that there were some, whether it was on the golf course or in the clubhouse afterwards, that there were some fatalities from a little bit of heart failure. Um, so they erected a long, long time ago. We're talking that might be in the late 20s or early 30s 
they erected basically a seven story, uh, which is how tough the walk was going up 18, a seven story uh, elevator shaft that took you up when they redesigned the 18th hole to a par three. You, you finish 17, you hop in a, a really claustrophobic elevator box. Um, you, you climb up about seven stories and you walk across about a 125 yard bridge. And then you're, you, you find yourself upon the 18th hole, which is can range anywhere from 220 yards to 150 yards. It's really a difficult par three. It's a tremendous finishing hole. It's always had a lot of the, a lot of drama in the events that we've held here. Um, but yeah, unique, um, certainly state of the art back in the thirties. Um, and it's something that, that, that the members feel is, is one of, uh, almost a secondary logo for the club, uh, because people that know and come and play, that, that's something that they really want to experience. Hopefully they don't get stuck, but, uh, it's a, it's just a tremendously cool thing that this club has embraced for, you know, 90 years or so. Chris, just a couple more before I let you go. And you mentioned Fox Chapel earlier, which is almost literally right across the street. Is there a friendly competition between PFC and Fox Chapel with respect to playing conditions? And do you guys push each other to get to greater heights? Yeah, yeah. I think I think when you're in a when you're in a neighborhood that has Fox Chapel, Oakmont, and Longview, I think you've and you know, and not too far away Laurel Valley and not too far away Allegheny, there, there's always there's always a competition to be as good as you can be um, with all of them. Uh, you know, one of the blessings here at field club is that they have, they have a Ryder cup match uh, for both under 50 called the D bold and over 50 called the McLaughlin cup. That uh, is, is Oakmont Fox chapel field club in Longview. And, and every year um, in, in July is the D bold and in, in September is the McLaughlin cup. They play a four to a, a, a 72 hole, three day Ryder Cup match with uh, singles, foursomes, better ball. And uh, it's the D Bold is the best of the best. You know, you always get Oakmont's college kids and uh, you see some tremendous play. And, and then you've got the McLaughlin Cup, which is the senior side of it, which is, you know, members at all four clubs that play the D Bold for 20 or 30 years. And uh, the rivalry is there. Um, you know, Oakmont certainly has had the, uh, had the most success. Uh, they certainly um, have a wealth of good players, as do all the clubs, but they seem to always pull out, as many times, pull out as a victor in those competitions. And, you know, Fox Chapel and Field Club have their own little Ryder Cup called the FC Cup, and we do that earlier in the year. And, um, yeah, there's there's competitive spirit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you think about – the players who participate, they've probably been playing against each other since they were kids. And some joined Fox Chapel, some joined Oakmont, some joined Field Club, Longview, some joined two or three of them at the same time. And um, it's a it's a it's something that I always pinch myself when I go to these tournaments and stand on the first tee and shake hands with all the players and, and know how much history is involved in these two match play events. The ladies have one uh, for themselves. It's called the Abernethy Cup between the four clubs. So uh the four clubs in Pittsburgh here uh, certainly embrace uh, history and tradition, both uh, on a competitive level in golf and, as, and on a competitive level with the conditions of their golf course and the, the environment you promote at your club. So uh, it's certainly one of the things that I you, you pinch yourself and think of. Is there any other city in the world that has four clubs of the quality of, of the four we have here in Pittsburgh that has had a Ryder Cup style match be, 
for the women, the men, the male seniors, and the juniors for as long as they've done it. I, I'm not sure you could find anything on the globe that, that could challenge that. Chris, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the things you're getting involved with, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at PFC PGA Pro. And uh, we're on Instagram at PFC Golf 1882. Uh, you know, sometimes we tell it, we, we broadcast Instagram live our, our, our big events. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not an overly zealous uh, social media poster, but uh, we do uh, have things for the members that we post that's private. We, we do have things that, that I like to post, uh, whether it's, you know, my sports fandom or things of that nature. But uh, Twitter and Instagram is where you can find me. Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show again tonight. You're always a treat to get to spend time with. I hope we get that privilege again sometime soon. Uh, absolutely, Chris. The real treat's being with you. Uh, you know, as Tom said before me, uh, everyone who works with you just raves about how great you are, prepared you are, and how excellent you are. And certainly, uh, you know, all the voting that's happening, all these podcast votes and things of that nature. And and seeing you at the top is is uh, is very well deserving. So thank you for including me, and uh, I look forward to doing it again. I appreciate that very much. Take care, Chris. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. You as well. See ya. That is Chris Sheehan, folks, a great friend of the show and a great friend on and off the air. Again, he's been a part of the show seven times. I can't thank him enough for the great content that he has shared over the years as a part of this show. Give him a follow on X or Twitter, whatever we're calling that thing these days at PFC PGA Pro. Go over to Instagram at PFC Golf 1882 to see what's going on at the Pittsburgh Field Club. I love the history that he shared with us about that fantastic place. I don't think enough people know how great the golf course is, how it's in such great shape, you know, month after month, year after year, ready to hold a major event. And I love the idea of having the Solheim Cup there. How great would that be to have the Solheim Cup there right in downtown Pittsburgh? I mean, what a wonderful event that would be. I hope someone is listening and will take that and run with it. I'll certainly try to feed it to the folks over on the LPGA side that come on this show. But Chris is fantastic, folks. So much great history there in and around the golf courses in Pittsburgh. We heard about the wonderful competition amongst some of those great courses. We're going to get into a little bit more of the history that's available. You heard him talk about David Moore. David Moore is about to join me here on the show. Before I get to David... I want to remind you about our friends over at Squares Golf. And folks, do you sway in your off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt. At squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now it's time to get to David Moore. He is joining me for the very first time here on Next on the Tee. 
He is the curator of collections at Oakmont Country Club and a part-time curator of history at Allegheny Country Club as well. He also consults, as you just heard in the last segment, with our friends over at the Pittsburgh Field Club as well as over at Montclair Golf Club over in New Jersey. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in American History at Pitt and then his Master of Arts in Applied History over at the University of Massachusetts. And I'm very excited I get to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, David, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So, David, as Chris Sheehan was just talking a few moments ago, you're helping them prep for the 150th anniversary of the Pittsburgh Field Club. That's got to be exciting work. What are some of the things you're starting to work on and look at as they prepare for that big event? It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I've been very lucky here in the last, uh, I've been very lucky overall, but in the last uh, 18 months or so to get a chance to work with a lot of these great clubs out here in Western Pennsylvania and across the country. But uh, when it comes strictly to the field club, you know, I, I think it's one of the underrated clubs in the area. Like, uh, like you guys said, when, when Chris was on, you know, Oakmont and Fox Chapel, get a lot of the accolades when it comes to the golf courses in Pittsburgh. Um, I think Allegheny is, is a great one that's underrated. And I think the field club is too. And when you look at the field club, you really do have a, a, a lot of history there, both locally, but also nationally, you know, it was the host of the 1937 PGA championship that Denny shoot won. Uh, it was the host of the 1959 Western open that uh, Mike Sochak won over Arnold Palmer. And, um, you know, I have to agree with Chris. I think I think it would be a perfect golf course for the ladies to play, whether it be a Solheim Cup or uh, or a U.S. Women's Open or, uh, you know, some some tournament of um, of that repute, um, I, I think would be a, a great addition to the history of the field club. Um, it, it's just uh, it really is just a, a cool course. It's a cool club. And the history is just awesome. It's it, it really is one of the special places in our area. David, I read you've always been kind of a history buff. When did that start to become a thing for you? Uh, I grew up a history buff. You know, when most kids were reading, uh, you know, Hunger Games and Harry Potter. Not that I didn't read those, but I, I was reading, you know, Band of Brothers and things like that at, you know, 10, 11 years old. And I originally went to school to be a pharmacist and uh, it just uh, didn't work out. And, you know, I, my dad suggested, you know, you, you always liked history. Why don't you do that? And um, so that was uh, the path I took. And I, I went, uh, graduated from Pitt and then I went to grad school in, in Boston and focused on public history and, and archiving, which is, um, you know, when it, when it comes to a history degree, you know, there's uh, there's very there's not a whole lot of avenues. You either kind of go into teaching, you either go to law school or you don't really use it. And I, I was pretty damn determined to use it. And uh, I interned in a museum in my senior year at Pitt and just fell in love with that sort of work. And then uh, when I graduated from UMass, I moved back out to Pittsburgh because I just, I fell in love with the area during my time at Pitt. And I, uh, I was just hoping for any sort of job in, in the history field in the museums. And it just so happened that one of the places I applied uh, had a connection to Oakmont and they put me in touch with their general manager at the time. It was, uh, his name was Paul Moraz. And, uh, you know, we went back and forth for a couple months and then 
next thing I knew, I, I, I got a phone call in February to come in on Monday uh, for a tour, and I, I, I was given the job that day, and um, it's been kind of, uh, you know, no looking back ever since. I, I've been incredibly blessed and lucky that, you know, this is what I get to do for a living. Um, you know, if you would have told me that when I graduated UMass, I'd be a golf historian and working for all these prestigious clubs. I, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but, um, you know, reality is, is really sweet now. So, David, the pictures and the items on display at, at Oakmont are just unbelievable. I was checking out some of the pictures that you've posted. Talk about, for those who haven't been privileged enough to get to walk around the clubhouse and the areas there at Oakmont, what would we see if we had that opportunity to tour around it? Uh, you know what? Oakmont is really uh, one of the top-notch clubs in the country, one of the top-notch clubs in the world. And when it comes to their history, it is so vitally important to the club. Uh, and it always has been. You know, championship golf is is in the DNA of every single member that joins that club. And then the, the history of championship golf goes right along with it. So uh, as soon as you walk in the front door at, at Oakmont, you would be greeted by the four USGA trophies, the two Havemeyers, uh, and the uh, the two Open trophies for the men and the women. Uh, each one of our display cases for the Opens features items from the tournament itself and the champions. Um, you know, our, our U.S. Amateur display is, uh, I'm really proud of that one. Uh, we put that together ahead of the 2021 Amateur with some really neat items and beautiful pictures that we came across over the years preceding that. And then uh, right now we're, we're kind of in the process of working on some other stuff and we have a Wanamaker trophy coming a uh, full replica. So we're excited about that. But, you know, when you walk into Oakmont, it, it, it's kind of, you know, uh, when I get to do tours for people, I, I tell them it, it's kind of like walking into Cooperstown or walking into Canton, Ohio, the, you know, the, the hall of fame, you know, you walk in and everything is just so beautifully and eloquent, eloquently done uh and displayed and you know you look at the names on the wall from you know J bobby jones to ben hogan jack nicholas you know uh, and then you think of the couple guys that that didn't win there but came very close and tiger and arnie palmer and, and, and things like that and um you know it truly is a you know a hall of fame so to speak uh, uh, in terms of the the champions there and you know and how we present and preserve their legacies and, and the and the tournament history is you know really just kind of second to none um out there and, and we're just really proud of the work we get to do every day you guys have held some oakmont history nights talk about mm -hmm. what those are about uh that's been a, a new thing for us uh this year and it's something that we're really hoping uh we're going to get to do now going further annually maybe a couple times a year um you know the the disaster at oakland hills two years ago uh for those that don't know in february 2022 oakland hills uh clubhouse uh tragically burned to the ground and they lost some of their their beautiful displays and things like that. And that really kind of opened the eyes up to all the historic clubs um, that, Hey, like this could happen to us. We need to, we need to take steps to, you know, make sure that, you know, we're, we're already taking these steps to preserve our history. 
you know, that way we have it, but we need to do a better job of preserving it in case of tragedy. Um, so the History Nights at Oakmont actually grew out of that because we, we got a brand new state-of-the-art archive room this year. And, um, you know, what, our first History Night was to kind of open that up to the members to see, for them to come and see uh, what we had and what we're doing and, you know, what uh, basically you know, what their, their generosity in terms of budgeting was, uh, what, what it gave us. And it doubled our space in terms of, uh, in terms of the size of the archive room, uh, it gave us the space to work at and really kind of lay things out, which we, we didn't have before. Uh, and then the most important thing is, is everything is, uh, protected from fire, water, uh, humidity and things like that. Our, our room is about 12 hours waterproof and fireproof just in the construction of it and uh the 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 uh containers like the the filing cabinets and such that we use are also fire rated you know for another eight to ten hours so our our collection you know barring some truly truly catastrophic event um is, is pretty safeguarded and that was what our history night uh our first one started as it's just uh, a way to show the members of you know this is what uh the club is has done this year and you know we're really proud of it and then uh, just a couple of weeks ago we we did a more of a sit down uh history night in in the clubhouse and i told the story of how golf uh, first comes to pittsburgh and then how oakmont is is really founded um and i i think a lot of the members really enjoyed that because they probably didn't know their early history uh, certainly of pittsburgh golf um, but probably not even the early history of the club besides, you know, that, you know, Henry Phones founded it and and his son was instrumental in, in raising it up to national uh, national prominence. Um, but, you know, we kind of went into the whole story of Oakmont and in those first 25 years or so. And it uh, it got a really, really great reception. I, I I was very proud of the work that our committee did and the them allowing me to go and tell these stories. And uh, it's just, uh, it's truly a special place. Uh, if you've never been there, um, certainly try to get to the next open in 2025. And uh, even just to walk around the golf course. And if you get a chance to get out there and play with a member, uh, you know, don't pass it up, even if it's a rainy or cold day, you know, it, it's well worth the trip. All right, so now you've got us intrigued. Is there some of the stories that you've shared about the first 25 years of the club that you can share with us tonight? Yeah, sure. So um, Oakmont is probably uh, about the seventh or eighth oldest club in Pittsburgh, believe it or not. Allegheny is the first uh, in, in terms of having golf. Uh, the field club is the oldest in 1882, but it didn't get golf until 1897. Uh, Allegheny comes first in 1895, Pittsburgh Golf Club and so on. Oakmont comes around officially in 1903, um, and it was founded by Henry Phones. Uh, it's spelled F-O-W-N-E-S, but it is pronounced like telephone. Uh, Henry was a steel magnet, just like a lot of the uh, the wealthy elites in the at the turn of the century here in Pittsburgh. He owned uh, a company called the Cary Furnace, which at its peak was producing 1,200 tons of iron a day as part of the Homestead Steelworks uh, that was eventually sold to Andrew Carnegie in uh, 1898 and then uh, later sold J.P. Morgan and U.S. Steel in 1901. 
so Oakmont, uh, Oakmont's founder, Henry Phones, was uh, made a, a pretty wealthy man at a relatively young age in, in the late 1890s. And uh, the story goes that, you know, he was a big bicycle enthusiast. And one uh, Sunday afternoon, he was welding a bicycle uh, tire back together and noticed he developed spots in his vision, which uh, led him to a trip to the doctor. And he was misdiagnosed with arteriosclerosis and he was given about six months to a year to live. So he sold off all of his business interests and he traveled. And it was during this time that he really kind of took a, you know, a liking to golf and traveled to you know, the, to Scotland and Ireland and played at some of those courses, um, only to find out that, you know, when he welds next time, he should wear protective goggles and that he would be fine. And in fact, he'd live another 37 years after this whole ordeal. And uh, so he's around 1900, this is all happening. He's uh, about 44 years old. He's a millionaire. He's got, uh, you know, nothing but time on his hands at this point because he was, you know, supposed to be dead. And uh, he decides that, you know, he wants to play golf and he wants his own golf course. And they spend a couple of years before they find the property in Oakmont. And then in 1903, they officially purchase the property and uh, the legend is born. David, one of the many unique things about Oakmont is that it's a National Historic Landmark. It got that designation back in 1987. How important is that designation for the club? Uh, it's certainly very important. There's very few clubs in the country that, are, are, that have that full designation from the Department of the Interior. Um, the last I knew, there was only four. Um, but I'm not sure if that number is still accurate. I know it was us, Pebble Beach, Marion, and I want to say Augusta National. Um, you know, so it, it's certainly uh, a very uh, something that the membership is very proud of. It's, uh, you know, to, to be in such elite company and, and to be the first uh, for that, for that matter, uh, was certainly a big deal. Uh, when when it was uh, designated back in the 80s, President Ford came to play and spoke at the dinner. And uh, we have some really cool pictures from that day, actually. And uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, like, like we said, you know, Oakmont, it's just historic through and through. You know, it's hard to believe that, you know, some of the biggest moments in history have all happened at the same place. And uh, we're very, very lucky that that's been the, the, the case. David, we all know about the legendary greens there at Oakmont and how fast they are. The stint meter that we all hear about and use to determine the speeds of greens nowadays was created by Edward Stimson, who was an amateur player from Massachusetts, but he designed the stint meter after attending the 1935 U.S. Open at Oakmont. Is any of that equipment a part of the collection that you have there? Uh, we don't have Stimson's original uh, stint meter. It, it is the story that we tell on our. Uh, we do actually offer public tours of the club on uh, on Mondays. Uh, so we're we're done for the year, but we'll be starting back up again next uh, next spring. Um, so when we do do tours of the club, that is one of the stories we tell about Stimson uh, and the creation of the stint meter. We don't have any of the original drawings or any of that on display. Uh, but as the story goes, Stimson was there in 1935, and he watched Gene Saracen uh, put off a, a green or two into a bunker and thought, man, these things are so fast, we need to figure out a way to measure them. 
and that was uh, when he created the the meter not long afterwards. And uh, you know, today those greens are as diabolical as they were a hundred years ago. They they run pretty much on a fourteen or so daily, and if they're having a tournament and the members really want them cranked up, uh, it gets uh, even higher. Outside of Pittsburgh and the Western Pennsylvania area, you've created some great displays at Montclair Golf Club over in New Jersey. For our folks who are not familiar with Montclair, talk about that club and what you did there. Uh, so Montclair dates back to 1893. Uh, they, they moved a couple different locations before they settled where they are now in West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, Montclair is a, a great uh, club. It, it reminds me a lot of Allegheny back here in Pittsburgh. Um, that it kind of gets overshadowed by a couple of the courses in in a couple of its neighbors, like Baltusrol and uh, in Mountain Ridge and things like that. Uh, but it's a beautiful uh, facility. Twenty seven holes of Donald Ross, nine holes of Charles Banks. As uh, the host of the nineteen seventy three women's uh, U.S. Women's Amateur that Carol Semple Thompson won, and then the nineteen eighty five uh, U.S. Amateur that Sam Randolph won. And uh, it was actually the home club of uh, Jerry Travers back when he won his first two U.S. Amateurs in 1907 and 1908. And it was also the home course of a lady named Carolyn Coudone, who holds the USGA record of winning five consecutive U.S. Senior Women Amateur Championships. Um, She's the only uh, USGA champion to ever win five in a row. And uh, she's the only person to ever win five of that event. Um, and it's it really is a great club. Uh, you know, I was I was lucky enough last fall to speak at, uh, at the Donald Ross Society's annual event. And uh, that day I actually played with uh, one of the history committee members over at Montclair. And, you know, we got to talking and, you know, he asked he was asking questions and. I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, you know, we were on the course and, and chatting away. And a couple, uh, about 10 days later, I got a phone call from uh, one of their uh, board members who said, hey, I'm coming out to Oakmont. I'd like to talk to you. And uh, by the end of the year, we had a deal to do some work. And uh, I met with them in February. And we discussed, you know, what our goals were for this year and, and, the, and the years going forward. Because... You know, one of the biggest things with what I do is, um, you know, it takes it does take time. You know, this isn't something that you can rush and and, uh, you know, try to get done within a week or two. You know, it's something that does certainly take some time to, you know, research out and and find these artifacts and organize them and, and then really create these special displays. So, you know, we, we, and the other big thing is, you know, it costs money to do that. It costs money to acquire the stuff and build the display cases and frames and everything like that. So, you know, we kind of put these plans together, you know, what can we feasibly do this year? What can we do next year? You know, what's our budget for this and that? And um, so this year we focused on uh, the, the library room there. Uh, that room was actually an old storage closet prior to this year. And they built a beautiful display case within a bookshelf uh, in a, or a bookcase. And uh, it is now the home of their uh, Havemeyer Trophy and uh, Robert Cox Cup replicas. And uh, the displays around them are focused on, uh, you know, some of those those champions like Carol Thompson and Sam Randolph 
and the photos on the wall are curated to tell the story of golf at Montclair, you know, and, and that includes the, the four individuals I mentioned earlier. Um, and also we, uh, we used, uh, a couple of old hickory clubs to tell the story of the Anderson family, which, uh, for those that don't know, um, old Tom Anderson came over from Scotland with his two boys, Tommy and, and Willie. And Willie Anderson was a four time U.S. Open champion in the first, pretty much the first decade of the tournament. And, uh, before he, he tragically passed away at a young age. And, uh, young Tom was, uh, the pro at Oakmont from 19, 19- 12 to 1913 before he replaced his father at Montclair after he passed away. And uh, young Tom was uh, at Montclair for two years before he was tragically killed in the car accident. Um, but we had uh, clubs from all three of those guys and uh, we have them beautifully displayed in that clubhouse. And, you know, that was one of our big projects for this year. And then uh, the other major project was their uh, president's room. Uh, which is uh, which was their boardroom, and uh, th- they've been lucky enough to have two USGA presidents, uh, three Metropolitan Golf Association presidents, and a couple of women's Metropolitan Golf Association presidents. And uh, you know that's something to be very proud of that your you know members of your club are seen as uh, influential and 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 strong enough to be leaders of these regional organizations. So you know we really wanted to highlight that. Uh, at Montclair, and and that's what we did in the boardroom. We we got headshots of all these individuals and kind of told their story. And and now uh, you know the membership uh, can learn about their club in, in a different way. You know, you know the work we do is uh, is really just storytelling, and, and that's the key to all the work that I do. Is you know if you can tell a compelling story, you're going to walk away with it. So that's that's what I try to do day in and day out. David, I have to imagine you've heard some great Arnold Palmer stories, particularly at the event last week at McKeesport Heritage Center. Do mm-hmm. you mind sharing some of those? Oh, boy. Uh, there's a lot of great ones, and and, and I cannot uh, recommend the book uh, Arnold Palmer, Homespun Stories of the King uh, anymore. It is one of the best Arnold Palmer books that is out there. It's by a local author from uh, Latrobe here. And, um, you know, when, when Arnie passed away in 2016, uh, Chris, who wrote the book, reached out uh, in the newspapers and, and, you know, put a put a word out that, you know, he wanted your Arnold Palmer stories and, you know, he wanted to share them. And uh, he got, you know, four or five hundred responses and not a single one of them was negative. And uh, it really just became the, the basis of that book. But uh, when it comes to Arnold Palmer stories, I, I unfortunately don't have. Uh, a personal one because I, I never got to meet the man. I, I really, I wish I did because he's one of my heroes. And, um, I think he was the hero for for many of us uh, out there. Uh, but one story that I, I do have uh, was told to me by a gentleman named Marino Parencenzo, and uh, he might that might be a familiar name to some. He was writer for Golf Digest for many years, and he wrote for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette for. Uh, about 45 or 50 years out here in Pittsburgh. And he wrote the history book uh, at Oakmont. And when I first started there, uh, they were redoing the book after Dustin Johnson won in 2016. And I got to, you know, sit down with Marino a couple afternoons and just, you know, kind of go through pictures and stuff like that. And 
it was right after Mr. Palmer died. And, you know, he said, he goes, well, do you have an Arnold Palmer story? And I said, no, and, you know, unfortunately I never got to meet him. And he said, oh, he goes, Dave, he goes, the stories that you hear about how wonderful a man he was are not, they're not BS. It's the truth. He goes, and let me tell you, he goes, let me tell you exactly what that, what I mean by that. And he said, uh, in the mid seventies, I, I just started covering golf for the Post Gazette, and they sent me to the Masters. And he said it was my second or third Masters. And uh, Arnie shot eighty three on Saturday or on Friday to miss the cut. And he said, Dave, anybody can shoot eighty three at Augusta to miss the cut on Friday. He goes, but when Arnold Palmer does it, it's a story. So you know, in the old days, then you could go to the locker room and talk to these guys. You know, you didn't have the the you know, the media tents and things like that. So Marino said, you know, he proceeded to go to the champion's locker room and there was two or three other guys there when he got there that had the same idea, but they were all kind of standing, you know, back from Arnie because they, they didn't want to bother him. And, you know, Arnie's sitting at his locker, sweating, drinking a beer and, you know, waves the guys over. One of the writers supposedly said, you know, King, we hate to talk to you at a time like this. Uh, to which Arnie replied, guys, nobody died. I just played terrible. <laughs> and he goes, what do you need to know? And proceeded to spend 45 minutes to an hour, you know, answering all their questions. And and Marino said to me, he goes, Dave, I've covered every athlete in this city from Barry Bonds to Terry Bradshaw and everywhere in between. He goes, most of them, if they would have had the day that Arnold had, wouldn't have even looked at you as they walked past you. He said, but that was Arnold Palmer. He would he would spend the time, regardless of how he performed, to make sure that the writers and you know anybody that wanted his autograph did not leave disappointed that day. And he said, you know, fast forward about 15, 10, 15 years, he goes, I got to know him. I, I used to go down to Latrobe a couple times a, a year just to, you know, sit and talk with him. And he goes, you know, in the mid-80s, he was in contention over at the Open Championship. He said, and this was a big deal. He goes, by this time, Arnie really wasn't contending in, you know, the the majors. And uh, he said, but on Sunday, he made a fifth, he made a 10 out of a pop bunker on the back nine to shoot himself out of the tournament. And he said, now, Dave, anybody can make a 10 out of a pop bunker to lose the Open Championship. But when Arnold Palmer does it, it's a story. And uh, he proceeded to go to the locker room again and, he walks in and Arnie looks up and says, oh, I knew I was going to have to talk to you, <laughs> to which Marino replied, well, if you didn't, he goes, if you weren't making a mess out of these pop punkers, he goes, I wouldn't have had to bother you so soon. And they proceeded to chit chat, you know, normal, you know, how's the wife, kids, and things like that for 20, 25 minutes or so. And then Marino asked Arnie, he goes, so what the hell happened in that bunker? To which, you know, Arnie supposedly responded. God himself couldn't get the ball out of that bunker and look what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, Dave, that was Arnold Palmer. He goes, he was, you know, the stories you hear, he was through and through the gentleman that has always been portrayed. He goes, you know, the, the, the world is, the world needs more guys like him. And, uh, you know, that certainly, certainly seems to be the case. You know, he, he really was that broke the mold when they, when they made him. You've done some great work with our friends over at the Golf Heritage Society. Shout out to our good friend, Dr. Bern Bernacki there. But talk about some of the articles you've written for them and being at their annual conference this year in Lexington, Kentucky. 
the Golf Heritage Society is a great organization. If you're interested in collecting hickories or just golf history in general, it's a, it's the organization to join. Uh, I believe it's about $50 a year for the annual membership. Uh, and and the, the, the best part of that membership is, uh, you know, the magazine that is uh, sent out quarterly called The Golf. Uh, Jim Davis does just an absolutely phenomenal job editing that. And uh, I, I'm really proud to, to be a part of it, and be given a platform to write uh, with. And, um, you know, I joined the society probably three years ago now. And, uh, you know, they asked me, how, you know, if I wanted to get more involved. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely love to write. I said, I spend a lot of time writing for the clubs. I'm finding all these stories. I think it'd be neat to, you know, share these stories with a broader audience. And, um, you know, they said, well, that's great. We're always looking for writers for the golf. So, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you want to write, let's, let's do it. And the first article I wrote was on a guy named Eben Byers who was a uh, member at Allegheny and the 1906 U.S. Amateur Champion. And, uh, you know, besides the fact that he was one of the best golfers uh, Western Pennsylvania ever produced, he, his, his story is uh, tragic at the end um, where uh, he gets injured and ends up drinking radium water, three bottles of it a mm. day for three or four years before his teeth start to fall out and, he uh, he gets uh, radium jaw and cancer and every horrific thing in between and basically um, dies this horrific, tragic death at the age of 52. And, um, you know, I was working on that story for Allegheny because he was one of their most prominent members. And, and uh, you know, so I sent the story to, to Jim Davis and it was printed. And, and luckily enough, it was selected to be their article of the year for for 2022 and uh you know i've written for them pretty much every magazine since then um you know there's times where life gets in the way and i, I don't get a chance to so I, I i probably won't be in another one until next year at this point but um but it's just a it's a great magazine you know the whole uh the whole organization contributes to it one way or the other and uh, yeah, the organization just overall is fantastic. We have an annual convention every year. Uh, last year was in Indianapolis. This year it was in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, it's just a blast. You know, it's really a fun time, uh, especially for especially for someone like me, because um, it's kind of uh, it, one, it's networking uh, on a couple different fronts. Uh, but, you know, it's just really cool to meet these guys and, you know, especially these collectors, the to see what they have and, you know, what they've acquired and, and uh, the stories that go behind them and, and things like that. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that the clubs send me to go and, and, and try to find, you know, artifacts for them while I'm there. And, you know, uh, while I was there this year, I actually got a trophy for the field club that dates back to 1918 and was able to pick up a couple things for Oakmont uh, while I was there. And, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's a cool, it's a cool week. You know, it's, uh, you know, we play, naturally we play a bit of golf, but uh, the rest of the time between the presentations and uh, the trade show and uh, just the general and the room trading too is big. You know, guys basically open up their suites to everybody to walk in and check out their collections. It's just, uh, it's really cool. And uh, if you're, into that sort of thing, I, I highly recommend joining the Golf Heritage Society because it's just such a wonderful group. 
David, one more before I let you go. And you created a wonderful DIY project where you took a baseball card display box, you turned it into something fantastic from a golf perspective. Do you mind sharing what you did and how you did it? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, doing what I do, I'm also a collector. I've grown up collecting autographs my entire life. Uh, kind of started with baseball and has uh, transformed into golf really here in the last 10 years or so. So, uh, you know, I, I, I collect a lot of different golf autographs and uh, the golf ball, signed golf balls have, has been my new, uh, my new little uh, hobby. Uh, I, I can't seem to stay on one long enough before I move on to the next one. But um, I have about 15 or 20 signed balls in my collection, and they, they kind of adorn my, my dresser in, in, in the bedroom here at home. And uh, I went to, I, I get them at Michael's. They're, you know, they, they have these nice little individual cases. I went and they were sold out of all the golf ones. And I thought, oh, man, you know, I don't really want to go searching for these. And I looked at the the baseball card one and it held the, uh, it's supposed to hold a, a baseball and then a, a trading card. And I thought, well, that, that could work. You know, all it needs is a little, you know, a little tinkering. So um, I, I'm very lucky that uh, my, I, I come from a crafty family. My mom is very arts and crafty and, uh, so I, I got to give her credit for that. So I, I was looking around, you know, Michael's, I found, uh, you know, some fake looking grass mat and chopped that up a little bit and hot glued it down and was able to create these pretty cool looking little display cases, uh, that host, uh, that now host, uh, my Arnold Palmer signed golf ball with, a with an Arnold Palmer trading card from the nineties. And uh, the other one, I have uh, Adam Scott in there with his rookie card. And, uh, you know, the whole little thing was done for probably both cases were done for less than $50. Uh, so, you know, it's it's little things like that that, you know, just kind of get imaginative of, of what you can do and how you can do it. And, uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a fun little weekend project when I got back from Kentucky. David, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Uh, online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at uh, the PA Golf Historian. Uh, I, I do most of my stuff uh, on those two. You can follow me on LinkedIn under my name, David Moore. And uh, I believe that's uh, that's pretty much it right now. Hopefully you know, down the road here, get a website to kind of promote the business side of things uh, a little bit more. But uh, the uh, the Twitter and the Instagram right now are uh, the best ways to get in touch with me. Or if uh, your club is interested in, in doing some work, you know, feel free to email me. My email is uh, dmore, M-O-O-R-E, uh, historical at gmail.com. And uh, be happy to talk to anybody that's looking to preserve and present their stories. Well, David, you've been fantastic, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. Your knowledge about what's going on from a historical perspective around our game is right at the top, second to none, in my opinion. I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing a lot of that with us. I hope this is just the first of many visits that we get to have with you. And again, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Chris, anytime. I'm always happy to talk golf history. 
uh, with anybody that's willing to listen. So anytime you need a guest, I'd be happy to jump on. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for that. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Hopefully uh, we get to catch up with you again real soon. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Take care, David. You too. That is David Moore, folks. Again, you can follow him at PA Golf Historian, and you can send him an email, dmoorehistorical at gmail.com is his email address. David talks about treasures, and he is one. I hope, like I say, this is the first of many, many visits that we get to have with him, get to learn from him. What great stuff about so many places and things from a golf historical perspective we learned tonight from David. A little bit in the previous segment with Chris Sheehan kind of leading into David, but what fantastic stuff at Pittsburgh Field Club, at Oakmont, at Montclair Golf Club, at Allegheny Golf Club. So much great history about our game of golf right there in the in and around the city of Pittsburgh. And David uh, shared so many wonderful stories. I love the stuff that he talked about with the King. Like a lot of it wasn't, hey, from a great memory that the King had or, or a situation that Arnold was going through, but it shows you what a great man he was for how he handled it and how he handled the people around him who had to ask the story and they, he gave them what they needed to know. So kudos to David for sharing that and all the wonderful things he did with us tonight. I'll look for him to come back on the show again real soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. I want to send out my sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Tom Pertzer, Chris Sheehan, and David Moore for joining me this week. Next week, I'm excited. I get to have four fantastic friends of the show all on the same episode. We're going to lead it off with Ohio State legend and 21-time winner between the PGA and Champions Tour, John Cook, will be back. Always have a great time when Cookie's a part of the show. 11-time winner, including the 1978 PGA Championship at Oakmont and the 1986 Players Championship, John Mahaffey will be here. John is another Great friend, as is one of Western Pennsylvania's best, Bob Friend Jr., who's also a member out at Oakmont. He'll join me as well, as will top 100 instructor in our game, Eric Johnson. He is such a great friend. So it's going to be a really fun show, folks. I hope you'll come back, tune in, and be a part of it with us. You can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review site. Go to TribLive.com, click on Sports and then Podcast, and you're going to see the show front and center available for you free right there. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audio Boom, and Player.fm. And as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts and a staff pick. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right from your favorite device on Good Pods. But most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.